You're listening to Conversion Nations, the podcast that helps conversion optimizers overcome challenges they face with their experimentation programs. Brought to you by Effective Experiments, the workflow and project management software helping optimizers make experimentation a core part of their business. Scale up your testing program with a centralized solution and document all your research, ideas, experiments, and results in one place. Learn more and request your free trial by visiting EffectiveExperiments.com. And now, your host, Manuel DaCosta. Welcome. This is Manuel DaCosta from Effective Experiments, welcoming you to another episode of Conversion Nations, uh, the CRO podcast where we talk to people in the industry and so you can learn different insights and different stories that you can put into practice in your organization straight away. In previous episodes, we've covered different topics about the best A-B testing tool on the market. We've talked about how we can um, you know, basically connect with people on a personal level and really up your game as a CRO to bring stakeholders into your side. Of, into your um, side. Today, I'm joined by Nima Yassini from Australia, the other end of the world for me right now. I'm staying up quite late for this, but I thought I need to talk to Nima. I really wanted to hear what he had to say. Nima, welcome. Thank you, Manuel, and uh, thanks for staying up. Like, what time is it over there right now? It's it's just uh, coming up to midnight right now in the UK. I, I must be good. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> there's, there's either you staying up late or me staying up late. It, it well, had to work one, one way or the other. Yeah, and, well, I hope know. I this point. I'll do my best. Now, Nima, can you, firstly, for our audience, you know, introduce yourself? Um, I've, I've heard about you, you know, we've come across each other on LinkedIn. We've talked a bit on, on, on LinkedIn, but this is the first time we're connecting ourselves as well. But the, uh, our audience will be interested in know more about you, about the agency you run. So yeah, go for it. So, uh, name is Nemi Yusini, as you said, um, have been, uh, founded a, uh, a consultancy in Australia about nine years ago, uh, started as full service and then pivoted into uh, where my heartland is. I, I come into experimentation from a UX background. Um, started becoming introduced to uh, experimentation in CRO uh, probably about 12 years ago when I was in London. Um, and we, I, I kind of ran into it when I was working at HSBC, well, working with HSBC and then came home and um, kind of pivoted and, you know, the market started becoming ready for it and started pivoting into that. So, Today, we specialize in really two core services, one around user experience design and the second one around experimentation and personalization. Um, and, you know, we work with big brands, little brands from, you know, HSBC through to BMW through to some of the local brands that if I told them, if I told you guys, you'd never know who they are. So that's a little bit about us. Fair enough. That, that's good to learn uh, about you. And, and uh, Conversion Nations, we, talk, we have conversations about conversion optimization. You're obviously here with a, with a topic you want to talk about. Uh, before we jump into that topic, there's one thing I'm really keen to explore before, before we go into that. And, and that's about conversion optimization on the other side of the world for me, right? Um, yep. Primarily because if you look at conversion optimization, uh, it's quite US-centric. A lot of the speakers, um, a lot of the you know blog posts and the the, uh, the maturity of the market is kind of US US focused. And then you also have Europe as well catching up. But there's there's a lot of um, gaps in my knowledge about how the Australian and the you know the New Zealand market as well, and even the, the Far East as well, how are they catching up? And it would be good to get your insights and your take on how yep. things are shaping up over there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you are right. It is very US and uh, Europe focused. Um, and, you know, we, like any good Australian, we don't want you bastards thinking that you can take over without us. So, so uh, you know, I, I think the main differences between uh, us is that um, we are still in a quite a fledgling industry over here. Uh, and we are, we, you know, I've been listening to your podcast for some time. We still suffer the same issues that you guys have, uh, but it's a very young industry. And um, a lot of my work is about building the category in Australia. Um, a lot of our work as the agency, we do a lot of work to build the industry as a whole and bring more people on this kind of culture of experimentation. Um, 
to see the the main differences is just levels of maturity and organizations that, you know, really promote and talk about it. So if you're in the US, I mean, the number of cases, you you can't surf the internet without tripping over booking.com CRO examples. You know, it's like the old days of brand Nike. So we don't really have that here in Australia. There aren't as many brands that are actively talking about experimentation. So we're very much helping organizations form teams, helping our organizations understand the cultural impacts um, and really bringing a level of expertise to the market that just generally doesn't exist. Um, but the one thing I could say about the Australian category is because you, you know, you have the US and, and, and Europe are like our older brothers and sisters, you know, uh, your older brother gets the worst parenting on earth. The middle child either gets forgotten or modicoddled and then the younger child gets a smooth ride. So, you know, we, we pick up a lot of stuff that you guys have already fine tuned and perfected and, and allows us to accelerate, you know, as a country, we, um, we take up, uh, new technologies at a more rapid rate than other countries. It's just the time by the time it gets to here, you guys are further advanced with it. So I think we are, um, to summarize where, where, we're a maturing country in experimentation. We are very fast in our mature uh, in our maturing rate, uh, but again, we are um, faced with challenges that you guys are just at different levels. Gotcha. So one of the things that I came across as well, and this was especially speaking to uh, people that were in European countries where English was not the primary language. So case in point, let's say for example, Italy, right? smaller country and Italian websites generally yeah. only accessed by Italians uh, that speak yeah. Italian. Um, and therein becomes the problem of traffic being limited because you have yeah, only a small segment of people. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to ask. Um, how do you overcome this? Because obviously um, with, with any testing, you need that threshold, right? You need that threshold of traffic. How are yeah. you kind of managing the expectations of those uh, clients that you work with where that traffic doesn't actually exist or it's on the lower side? How, how are you stepping up that game for them? It's a really good question. And it's, and you know, like when we started this, but you, you got to go back to the basics, right? Mm-hmm. Using tools like ice or pie, just they don't generally don't work here. Um, so we actually had to build our own scoring system. And I remember you guys talking about on one of the podcasts around how arbitrary it is. And, and it is, it is, but you know, uh, the number of times, the number one thing I hear from clients when they come to see me is they say, we can't get tests to significance. And so educating clients on the difference between statistical significance and confidence level uh, and, and saying there are different ways to predict the test has come to significance and using this, you know, diehard 95% stat sig, it's not always a smart move. Like that's just yeah. one indicator but that's not the only indicator that an experiment is one failed or neutral net net. So there's a lot of education around understanding how to um, read statistics or how to use different tools, which means we, 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 we don't always tell clients that, Hey, we're going to get to the 95 you know, significance and you turn on the tool and it just does magic. So we, there's a lot more education and, and a lot more understanding of how to use different statistical modeling to predict a test. Um, yeah. We've had, build our own uh, ranking or prioritization. We call it T-score. And a lot of that is built around traffic levels, positions on page, exposure, um, level of difference between control and variation. Um, We reduce the number of variants we can run at any one time to be able to hit, you know, we talk about rapid AB testing as opposed to multiple variants running simultaneously. We try and avoid multivariant testing if we can because you just the thing will cook for six months and might not. So there's a lot of limitations, but if you know, if you understand the category and you understand the, I guess some of the drivers within the category, you understand how to navigate clients through those drivers. And like I said, these are the things that we're educating the client. So we, you know, we actively listen, like I, I'm, I'm bummed that Chad didn't stay up to have a chat, but you know, <laughs> We hear guys like Chad, you know, talks about some of the stuff and, and what Tim talks about and, you know, other guys like Chris Gower um, that we listen to and Andre from Conversions Craft. All those assets help us better understand the category that we then bring to the market and educate clients. So there's some of the challenges we face and how we kind of deal with it. But 
traffic's a big problem for us. Um, you know, the size of, let me give you a good, give you a good kind of grasp on what we work with. Australia as a population of around about 24 million would fit into California. We would all comfortably live in California. We're a big landmass, but small population. And the yep. core of our internet usage is really spread across major two states, which is Sydney and Melbourne. So it's a very small market, but highly, highly competitive. What about what about the? Um, do you also work with you know uh, the Kiwis on the other end, and then um, China and the Far East as well? Are yeah. there clients coming in from that angle as well, or are you kind of focused on Australia right now? And what are your findings about those other markets? So, so um, the Asia. So we joined a, a big um, group. I don't know if you've heard of them called Go Group Digital, and it's amalgamation yep. of a bunch of conversion optimization groups. So we we are the Australian New Zealand partner of Go Group, and so um, we, we're really our remit is Australia New Zealand only. Uh, and what we're finding is again the challenges that you have in traffic, the kinds of companies you can work with in New Zealand have become even more limited, right? So. One of the things I would say that's helping us is um, the machine learning uh, tools that like Optimizely and Adobe have. But the problem with those uh, entities, and it's a gripe that I've always had, is they put their machine learning in the enterprise level. And, you know, they talk about how experimentation is for everyone, but only the select few in certain countries can actually go and deal with. So like the rest of us are like, listen, dude, I get it works in the US and I get you should charge that, but it doesn't work here. We need that tool. It is a catch uh, 22, right? Because if you want to get, you want to get to a certain level, you need that tool to get there, but you can't get, you can't justify the cost of the tool before you get there. But yeah, I think that's, that's look, a challenge, it, right? Yeah, I mean, look, it, you know, in the United States, healthcare is a major issue and, you know, people who can afford good healthcare have great health and people who can't, can't, right? And so if you ask me, it's a, it's one of those things that needs to be democratized. We, we talk about a culture of experimentation, but, and that we rely on the technologies, but fundamentally the technology is saying, unless you can afford a culture of experimentation, you ain't getting a culture of experimentation. So for the rest of us, it makes it really hard in those lower traffic, uh, you know, countries for us to be able to do these types of, you know, rapid experiments to actually build a culture. And, you know, what builds culture is success. When someone sees that, wow, you know, uh, I might not be winning from my experiments, I might be losing, but at least I'm learning and I'm pivoting in the right direction to start winning. Uh, unless I can run rapid experiments like that, you know, to bring stakeholders on the journey. And it's even harder in Australia, bringing a, a stakeholder on a journey where you will lose more times than you win. You know, I'm a really good sales guy. I figured it out that I am really good at sales because it's a hard experience to, you know, communicate to clients and actually get them to stop focusing on, hey, you just lost a few hundred thousand, but look what you learned. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't yeah. lose money. This is something we actually talked about on, on one of the previous episodes as well, where Valerie Kroll, one of our you know, regular, now regular kind of um, participants, she mentioned about something called the insights, um, insights rate optimization rather than a conversion rate optimization because conversion rates on its own, you can, you can game it. You can turn down the traffic or you can take out a, a channel that's not converting well, conversion rate goes up. But if, if you're, optimizing for learnings and insights, then we kind of change that game altogether. It's more about, you know, there's no success, there's no failures. It's all about what are we learning? Are we moving that needle forward as well? And the other thing you also mentioned was about tools and, and the, you know, the enterprise aspect of it. That's another uh, thing we covered in the best A-B testing tool on the market episode. So when that's out as well, you know, if, if you guys, it's probably out by now if people are listening to this. So, yeah. you know, um, go go back and listen to that episode uh, to all of you that are listening to this. Um, Nima, this is, uh, you mentioned about your uh, a framework that you had to create as well for prioritizing experiments. Now, I'm gonna be candid and ask, is that something you share openly or is that kind of proprietary? Yeah, so we're in the process of trademarking it before we do. Um, sure. And we spent a long time looking at the variables. Like we've studied over 600 tests and we looked at the variables that cause um, experiments to reach significance um, or, or ability to actually learn. 
what we what we were frustrated by was getting to inconclusive outcomes, which aren't bad. It's just, you know, you can pick whichever one you want to do, but sure. we're trying to figure out what are the variables that impacts a test to get significance because we do live in a country where you just can't get the significance sometimes. So, and then we also looked at other variables just from trial and error. I mean, we AB test our business. Every part of my business is AB tested. So me and my partners are constantly testing. We've built metric systems and so forth. So we also looked at where are the areas when we're running experiments where we could just do a better job. And like, for example, one of the things that I see none of the tools really take into account is how easy is it to build this test? Because the the space in which you're not running a test, you're losing, right? And then on the second hand is you want a test, but how easy is it for the tech guys to implement that test? How long will it take? Have they raised the ticket? So one of the things that we look at is, you know, is it easy to actually build this test in a speedy period or should we getting, you know, is it better to get this big macro test up or maybe a whole bunch of little tests up? You know, which one's going to be the best one to do? And then off the back of that is, okay, I've got all these tests, but, you know, are the implementation guys going to be able to, you know, implement these in a timely manner? And am I going to chew up a lot of bandwidth to serve these tests at 100%? There's another factor that I think is so critical before you decide what tests you build beyond, you know, will it hit the business goal? Is it in high traffic area? Is there enough of a configurable difference between control? And so uh, we built our own model that, you know, we found was a better structure both organizationally and also uh, had the greatest opportunity to assess uh, an experiment coming to significance. Yeah, definitely. And this is where, as you said earlier as well, that models like pie and ice kind of fall apart. One, because it's too um, high level. And the second uh, factor where it falls apart is where it doesn't actually involve the tech people in there. You know, uh, too often we're kind of in our own silos kind of prioritizing these experiments on our own thinking, okay, yeah, we can, this is an easy test. So this is a hard test, but really, as you mentioned, the time it takes to build that test and where does it slot in? Because the tech, unless they're a dedicated tech team for experimentation only, they've got a mountain of work to get through anyways. Right. So where does your test slot in? Sure, and knowing um, because you know, we don't classify an experiment finished until it's live on the actual website. You know, like I think a lot of times in experimentation, we see an experiment ending when you hit significance and you deliver the report. That's when the experiment just began because it's the process of getting it live that the actual business, this culture of experimentation, the actual business sees the benefit. Otherwise, the experiment's a blip in time. Like the number, the yeah. revenue you generate is a blip in a moment. And unless you can get that blip into being a consistent behavioral change over a longer period of time, that's the only time you actually know you've got a winning experiment. And so uh, the, the factor of implementation by the dev team is such a, it's such an overlooked, but such a critical component to changing this conversation that we're all trying to do. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's something that needs to be addressed uh, quite a lot in the industry. I mean, this is not even like restricted to your end of the world. It's, it's, it's the problem we're facing as well uh, because um, you know, quite a lot the the stuff if you've seen me talking about is about breaking down those silos, getting people talking to each other and really working towards the same goal. But it's everyone trying to pull in different directions uh, and that's not going to scale. It's not going to help anyone in the long run. Uh, so that's really insightful over there. You know, hopefully once you've trademarked your, your, <laughs> your prioritization yeah. model, I'd be happy to have a look at that, you know, to, to see yeah. what, what that looks like. Um, Obviously, every dip, uh, business is different, you know, so the prioritization models might work for some, might not work for, yeah. for others. But one thing, like one piece of advice from me is like for, for the, the, the listeners is you want to build prioritization models that are that answer those questions rather than using, uh, you know, a prioritization model like Pi because it's easy. That's one thing I hear quite often, you know, for teams starting out. Yeah, we're using Pi. Why? Well, it's easy because, you know, it's better than doing nothing. Yes, it's better than doing nothing. But it's going to hit you down, you know, further down the road. I think one thing you need to take into note is that I think experimentation has evolved. And some of these prioritization tools were built when experimentation was about a WYSIWYG editor. And, you yes. know, Pete Coombs from Optimizely, he himself said, we should never have talked about a button because everyone's just like, change the button. Like, <laughs> like, why on those kinds of things works, right? I mean, it's, 
it's a good model in the old days of optimization. But like you look, you look five years ago to now, the level of like server side testing, the level of experimentation. I think uh, Pi just had was great at a period of time. It just hasn't evolved. It's not that it's a bad it's a bad prioritization tool. It's just it was good for a moment in time. And I right. think what is there's an evolution of that, which is what, you know, experimenters like us are doing. We're questioning these things and we're building the next evolution. And I guess in five years time, the T-score is a really outdated and useless scoring model. So these things evolve as we're evolving because we're a new category and we're building this category. Yeah, definitely. Now, enough of my segueing into, into Australia. We were going to talk about well, introduce your introduce the topic that you were going to share some insights about. But look, I know we talk about. I know I've heard like people talk about the psychology uh, aspect in CRO, and I, I just want to kind of start by, and that's something I'm really passionate about. So I, I you know, everyone comes into uh, what I've noticed is everyone comes into this category uh, in totally different ways. You know, a lot of people come from analytics. I hear. Uh, you know, I, I hear people coming from like a sales, digital sales marketing background. Um, and, you know, I've heard some people come in from a tech background, which is really fascinating. I, I come at it from a user experience. So I got into UX where in 2003 when it started coming into Australia. So I got really passionate and I loved UX because I, I enjoy design uh, and I enjoy psychology. And, you know, if you, are, if you fundamentally break down user experience design is about understanding the psychology of how someone navigates or goes about answering a question using their mouse and a website, right? Or, or an app. So I, I really got into that angle. And uh, when I got into the CRO space, what I found really interesting was, although we talk about UX, we don't talk about psychology. It's kind of like this implicit thing that we do, but there's very few conversion rate optimization experts who actually talk about experimenting to understand the psychology of a customer. And there's very few that talk about the different cognitive biases or who talk about, I don't know if you've heard of a field of study called neuroeconomics. We talk about neuroeconomics within experimentation. So that's the topic of my, uh, of, uh, I guess my desire to come on and have a chat was to really bring this more to the forefront and see if I can persuade others to start I, selfishly, I want everyone over there to go and play with it and then give me all the answers and I'll start doing it. Sure. <laughs> so one person comes to mind when, when you talk about psychology and, and cognitive yeah. biases. Uh, one, um, a good friend of mine, Bart Skutz, from yeah. Online Dialogue uh, from the Netherlands. Yeah, I, that. um, yeah, so I heard that one. That was good. Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, I think, um, what was the um, website that he had? Uh, the Wheel of Persuasion, and that had uh, a list of all the biases. I think there are some other resources online as well. But yeah, so uh, that his his talks come to mind. Uh, he yeah. has a lot of uh, stuff like around the marshmallow test and around, um, yep. well, he goes about the, the king and queen of the, uh, uh, in the Netherlands. Yeah, so if, if you ever get a chance for people listening or watching this podcast, if you get, get a chance, check out Bart as well. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll let you continue and tell us what, what is neuroeconomics? So, so let, let's, let's kind of go back, right? I have a prediction that experimentation over the next five years is going to really start to split, right? I think there's going to be a group of experimenters coming to the market that are led from a media perspective, you know, SEO, SEM. And what they're looking to do is drive down the cost of acquisition by optimizing the landing page experience or that page the media arrives on, right? So they're really focused around, because if you look at it, you know, Google AdWords, I remember the days that were like a dollar or 30 cents per click. And now- <laughs> The good old days. Yeah, the good old days, right? And if you're in banking now, you're, you're paying like, you know, $30, $40 a click. So, yeah. so, you know, there's, and if you look at what Google's doing around Optimize, it's its third attempt at, you know, a, a CRO tool. Because it realizes, and its algorithm in, from an SEM perspective is built on relevance, right? So it's basically positioning itself saying, hey, I know my cost per click's going up and I know people are going to start looking for other channels because it's getting costly. I need to help them increase their relevancy. So I think there's a group of people that are going to come in really focused around media-led optimization, you know, single story, single proposition focused around a single outcome, some form of conversion, right? On the flip side of that, 
I think there's a group that's going to really start to form, which is around experience-led optimization, which doesn't look at conversion as a point of transaction uh, or around those experiences that ultimately delivers a longer-term uh, outcome for a customer. Have I lost you there? Hey, Nima, I think I lost you for a second, right? So what we'll do is... Uh, we'll just pause for a second. I'm just going to uh, make a note of the time over here. Um, but what we'll do is we'll just pause. And then if you just go back two sentences ago and then start with that exper exper experience-led optimization, and then I'll edit that out of here. Yeah? Sorry about that. No, no, don't worry. It's, uh, if it happens, we can always edit it out. This is not live, so no apologies. Right, tell me when. Uh, let's go. Okay, so there's that. There's a, the second part, the flip side of that is this group that I see coming out called experience-led optimization. And experience-led optimization is really focused around um, the types of UX changes or fundamental structural on bigger brand assets that delivers an outcome, whether that's a positive outcome, a lifetime value, uh, retention strategies. And a lot of this has been led by this kind of revolution of digital products and digital product managers, right? So I think there's two groups that are about to come out, right? And what I think will happen over the next five to 10 years is that optimization or A-B testing as we know it will become a commoditized service, become a price-driven, speed-focused uh, outcome. And I think a lot of that's gonna be driven by the media guys. The product guys are going to be focusing more around how do I optimize my overall customer experience, and not just for conversion as a metric of success, but a whole bunch of bandwags of other things around retention, around, you know, feature optimization, R&D, new product development, and so forth, right? So if you think about, if you look at those two groups, what I think is going to happen in this product-led, and this is where server-side uh, optimization and deep-dive personalization all really lives, you think about it, what, what's going to start, what I believe is going to happen is the definition of UX is going to change. I come from a UX background and I truly believe the, the tradition and the reason why we got into optimization here was I got tired of the subjectivity of UX. I don't know, I don't know a single UX designer that would say to me that they haven't had an argument with a client or a, a colleague that didn't say, I talked to my neighbor or my wife had a look at this <laughs> and he didn't like how that nav sits or she thinks it's confusing. And, and you know, I, I, I totally appreciate opinion and I totally believe it's important to listen, but fundamentally analytics and UX are all subjective. They take, you can interpret data any way you want. I have, I've known people who, in, who can take any kind of large quantities of data and twist it into any story that they want to tell. Oh, yeah. There's that saying, right? You can choke data for as long as you want until it tells you the truth, the truth Correct. that you want to hear. Segment, segment, find that little nugget. Yeah, you can exactly. do that. All the data scientists that you threaten to inch of their life until they give you what you want, right? So, so <laughs> I, I, I got into this as a UX designer because I got tired of the arguments that would always end with me saying, I have 20 years of experience doing this. Like, like as if that's a real reason that my design is a good design. So I got tired of subjectivity. So I went into experimentation as a way of validating the design and bringing clients and other collaborators on the journey with me where every idea was a possibility and every idea was a test. You know, the, the way you could express something is infinite. So as we got into this space, um, as, and, you know, we focused really around that experience-led optimization, I, I started to dive more into, you know, um, uh, into, well, uh, how are we placing things on this page? Like, why are we deciding that this placement's better than another? And how, how are we actually starting to understand the customer better? Because ultimately when you do UX, you're positioning things based on personas and so forth, but what are you actually learning? What, you know, what is that click behavior telling you? You know, the number of times that I've seen a UX person lead a conversation around analytics is, it, I can count them on my hand. And ultimately what the user clicks is what dumps into data, which is then creates that report. But the number of UX people that start from, what is that dashboard that you're going to report to the business look like? And then come back to go, well, what's that interface and how is that going to connect? I can count them on my hand. And so where we got to was, okay, if I want to know what's in this report, I want to know, well, what are what are these actions that I'm designing? What are they teaching me about 
customers. And I feel a lot of times when we talk about, you know, you, you talked about the young lady who talks about learning-based optimization. The thing we learn is when we fail and we go in and ask why, but we don't start the conversation with what do I want to learn today? And I think experimentation yeah. is an obligation to learn about customers, not to focus on how do I win because of my prediction. And I think a lot of time we come into experimentation with I'm going to do like, I personally think the hypothesis is the biggest red herring in optimization. The thing that we, like we teach our strategists here is problem statement. Focus on defining the problem before you focus on writing the hypothesis. The hypothesis is nothing more than a perfectly eloquent problem statement, defining the changes and defining an outcome. Right? But if you don't know the problem, then you'll never know the solution. Einstein said, I, if I get posed a problem, I spent three quarters of the time defining the problem, making sure I'm solving the right problem, and then the rest of the time fixing it. And I think in CRO, we're so focused on I'm going to win that we don't actually stop and go, well, what am I trying to learn? What's the problem I'm really trying to solve? And how do I understand my user better by, by solving that problem? That is an amazing piece of insight over there, just, you know, the problem statement, because the, the, the number of times, and this is, again, going back to what Valerie said as well, the insights-based, uh, insight rate optimization rather than success is because everyone goes in, or at least I'm generalizing over here, but people are going into CRO as a, as a way of, you know, proving a point. Uh, experimentation becomes more proving a point rather than, you know, we're trying to learn something of you. And that, that is a good thing. And if you take anything away from this, uh, you know, this um, podcast is start defining that problem statement. And it's the same thing for when you start digging into data, because if you start looking into data, just opening up your analytics or looking at session replays and stuff blindly without understanding what are you trying to achieve from that, then really you can go down different paths altogether. Yeah, we, we actually... There was, a, there was a moment in time that I kind of started questioning everything. I, I went in and I was working on a piece of work for a client and I, I did my standard thing. I opened up the Google account, went in, started looking for stuff. And I don't know why, but for a second there, I just stopped and I went, I'm, I'm actually not solving a problem. I'm telling them what problem they have by knowing where to look in this data to identify the problem I already think they have so I could prove it to them. And so I actually realized, and this is, and I think great designers, and I call experimenters designers because ultimately you're designing an experience, right? And I realized that, you know, our job is to get out of the way. Like our own biases is our biggest problem in this space. And, you know, I, I realized like if I'm going into the data, I kind of know what I'm looking for. So I need to stop doing that. So we've, we've flipped the model. We go into qualitative studies first. And we try to find friction points that we generally wouldn't look for by asking users to do certain tasks. And then we go into the analytics to go, how many other people have that problem that I just didn't know? And it helps me, like we use tools like Full Story, we use session recording, uh, we use um, remote user testing. And what we're looking for is stuff that we would not look, know to look for or that it would not index in the analytics either because it hasn't been tagged or it's not big enough for them to have tagged it prior. And so what we found is by flipping the model, we're looking for frictions that we don't know exist. And so we start to, we start to identify the problem. We have one experiment. I'll never forget it. It's the moment where I was like, this is the right way to do it. Was uh, we had an e-commerce client, fashion retailer, and we watched a couple of users go through their site and users would add items to their bag, but not pick a size. Now, no one in their right mind would buy a pair of jeans and not pick a size, right? Like, sure, yeah. would walk into a store and just pick the first jeans and go, here you go, right? So they hadn't tagged sizes. So we saw this event and then we went into um, the analytics, which wasn't tagged. So we went into full story. Thank God they had that. And what we found was like, this happened 3,000 times a month. 3,000 oh, wow. users every month would pick an item and then not pick a size and then not buy. And then we said, okay, just purely out of curiosity, we said, how many times has it happened twice? And it went down from 3,000 to 1,115. The same user doing the same action twice. And then we just out of curiosity, we said three times and it went down to 900. There are 900 people coming to this website oh, making the same mistake. And, and that oh God moment is when you watch this and you're like, oh my God, how can this be possible? 
when we showed the client, like even us, we were like, holy hell, that's when I knew, okay, we've got something interesting here. When you flip it on its head and you get away from yourself and the data and you start with the friction and then you work back into the data. I'm not, you don't, but you work backwards into it. You start to see really interesting things. And so that started the kind of uh, the ball rolling for us around a let's get away from hypothesis. Let's, let's really focus on problem. What, what's the problem we're actually trying to solve. And in that, what is it I'm trying to learn by solving this problem? Right. And when I say learn, I don't want to know your action. I want to know why I want to know the underlying factors. There's a guy called Dr. D Martini. He's like the Tony Robbins of finance, right? And he does this right. wonderful talk about the way you spend your money is directly related to your values in life. And so that's a really interesting paradigm shift. And it's true. I've worked in banking for a long time. I could actually, by looking at your credit card statement, kind of give an idea around whether you're married, whether you've got kids, whether you're single, how old you might be. I could kind of get all those things just by looking at your spending pattern, right? And there's studies done on this and it's really fascinating. But I guess what I'm looking for is when I'm designing an experience is when you click on something or you react to something like social proofing, what is that actually teaching me about you? Because I, I feel in experimentation, we're so focused on giving someone a fish, these tactical stuff that I see strategists do rather than teaching them how to fish, understanding the psychology behind social proofing, understanding that psychology within different categories. So for example, we ran an experiment for a uh, online brokering company, a uh, stock brokering company. And we had two propositions we were testing. One proposition was around, um, you know, join thousands of Australians who are, you know, finding a new way to invest their money. Uh, and we had another one, which, and they had an offer going on, which was zero brokerage free as an introductory offer, right? So we're not going to charge you any brokerage. And Australian brokerage is ridiculously high. So, you know, then they were like, everyone was like the zero brokerage, everyone's going to go to zero. And we ran those experiments and it was the join the community, which won. And when we dived into it around why, why did that win? And what we realized, and these are the points in time where made me realize we've got to change the way we do stuff here. And what, what made me realize is, you know, money, when you don't know, and if you look at the investors they had, a lot of them are new to investing. When it comes to money, people are afraid of making mistakes. You know, if I gave you $10,000, I'm your best mate for as long as you, you know, as long as that money's around or you've kind of forgotten the halo impact. But if I stole $10,000 from you, you'd never forget me. You will never forget my name. You probably want to hunt me for the rest of your life, right? So sure, this yeah. is the thing. When it comes to money, we have a, we have a, um, a loss aversion mentality. We want to keep it. We, we want to do everything not to lose it. Even though from behavioral economics perspective, we will go out of our way to lose it, right? So <laughs> when you look at it, when that proposition comes to life, people want to follow other people and they feel secure in that. So just in that experiment, we not only debunked their, their campaign around zero brokerage, but we also changed the way we talked about the product moving forward. It was all about joining a community, being part of a group. We changed functionality where you could do piggyback brokering. So you could actually see a guy who's made a lot of money because he's made himself public and then you could piggyback his investments, right? So you could follow your strategy, could be follow that guy, right? So we changed the dynamics of the entire structure and the site structure just through one action that taught us an insight about that customer. Um, and so we, we really started diving down and building structures around how do you take the different, so uh, going back to what you asked about neuroeconomics. So neuroeconomics is a field of study that tries to branch the two disparate structures of psychology that exist today. So traditional psychology says, um, I'm a rational human being and I make rational decisions not to screw up my life, right? About 15 years ago or so, behavioral economics came out that said, I'm an emotional human being and I make emotional decisions, right? And I ultimately go about screwing up my life, right? And rationalize those decisions. And of course, rationalize those decisions, but which is quite an emotional act, right? So yeah. <laughs> what economics does is it says, okay, listen, you're not, neither of you are right or wrong. Like, of course, human beings are rational. And of course, human beings are. So there's a field of study that they created called neuroeconomics that kind of sits above that, that says, okay, we make rationally irrational decisions. There are cognitive biases that we use. And within neuroeconomics, there's a field of study known as decision theory or choice theory, how we make choices, Right. 
and how those choices affect our life. And so within choice theory, uh, it talks about cognitive biases and then how we use, you know, today we're so busy that the mind used cognitive biases to help make decisions quicker. Um, and so we use those cognitive biases. There's 22 of them that really relate to eat, to buying the practice of biases. There's 104 documented cognitive biases. And I got to say, I don't usually say this, but I think Wikipedia has done a great job in documenting these. There's 104 of these, 22 of them really focus around commerce. And what we've been trying to do is figure out how did these different biases based on different points in the buying journey and different industry categories like banking or in travel, how do they come to play and how do you actually understand what it means about a customer when they do that? So we use these as a way of experimenting and finding those value systems that then drive back into helping define customer segments based on motivation rather than behavior, which is the biggest problem with segments is we, we focus segments on behaviors, not on motivation. So if I understand your values and how you spend money and do stuff, I'm better able to segment you and, and deliver a better experience to you than based on you bought red shoes, therefore you'll always buy red shoes or you have a propensity now to buy blue shoes. So those are very linear and the factors that influence those decisions are not taken into consideration like social, educational, cultural, all those factors play a role in how you made those buying decisions. That's what we're trying to do when we're looking at how we take um, psychology into uh, into our experimentation design. Gotcha. So one thing you mentioned about motivation and you know, segmenting users based on how they interact with the site, wouldn't the interactions actually be triggered by those motivations? So if you know they're buying red shoes, there is some motivation behind that. Uh, how would you? How would you? As someone new to this field, like neuroeconomics and trying to understand that, how would you advise someone to avoid their own biases when trying to figure this, navigate the, these waters essentially? It goes back to the problem statement, ask why. And you know, there's, there's some really good documentation around defining problems, right? Uh, there's a technique called the five, uh, five why technique. And it's something I, I can't say that we've nailed it, but we're trying to get better and better at it. Uh, and, and this is what I love about this space is, no one has nailed it. Everyone, and because we're experimenters, no one will ever nail it. We're always experimenting, right? So there's a technique called the five why technique. So ask why, you know, why are they buying red shoes? You say, because they like red. Why do they like red? Because they believe it sets off their skin tone. Why do they believe it sets off their skin tone? Because they're, they're pale. Why are they pale? Because they're born in a, you know, so if you keep going down the whys, you naturally start to get to a starting point that you can then start to open up and go, okay, let's run some experiments to understand this a little bit better. So you might start on red shoes, but where you might end up could be in a completely different place that starts to break down your customer. So I have this belief system that there is no such thing as a static segment, which is how segments are generally created based on sure. a number of dimensions. We create a circle and go, users that look like that belong here. I, I believe segments are elastic. You know, people move between segments based on what they buy, what they do, moments in time, socioeconomic, technology. You know, when the iPhone came out, that changed a whole bunch of people. Sure. Created industries, right? So uh, I, I find the best way to do it is look at your, go back to your problem statement. Don't look at the surface level problem. Dive deeper into it. And what you find is it'll find you a new territory start to expand and experiment on. There is no answer. You don't get to the answer at the end of the fifth why. What you get to is a number of possibilities that you want to experiment on. But what happens is you walk away from the surface level problem or the test to diving deeper into what is the real thing we're trying to solve here. For example, and this is a really bad example, pale people like colors that make them brighter, right? Or they want a peacock or single guys want to peacock when they go out at night. Therefore, red it's is going a really to trigger good. some stuff on social media. And I, I, I can, I can almost envision this happening. <laughs> but let's play with that, right? So we know that okay, that that okay, people who buy red, we've done our five white. People who buy red are generally doing it to peacock when they go out at night. That's one theory that we're going to test, right? So on the homepage, instead of showing you um, red shirts, I start to experiment with my traditional. Here's my red shirts discount price, or things to wear for nights out things for single guys, 
things to stand out to the ladies. By doing the five wires, you get down to a number of possibilities. And then from there, you're breaking up your new segments, right? But just realize by doing that, you found a whole new territory that you generally wouldn't look at because what you're looking at is, you know, we got a, you know, a bunch of people want to buy red shirts. The problem is sell more red shirts, right? It's a very surface level problem. Whereas if you start diving deep down, it's like, why are people buying red shirts? Well, because it's on this discount. Why? And if you do the five whys, what you land with, like we said in, in the example, you might land to people who buy red shirts are, are, are pale and they want someone to make it pop, right? Or they believe red shirts makes them stand out when they go out. Or um, single guys like red shirts because it helps them peak up when they're in a nightclub that's dark, right? You've just found yourself brand new segments, elastic segments that you can go off and test on which then is no longer a test about red shirts. It's a test about audience. It's about behavior. It's about where they are in their life stage. So by using experimentation, by, by using your problem statement to define the why in your hypothesis can actually, and then taking that to, uh, to define what do we want to learn from this problem statement can actually lead you into a much more richer territory where your experimentation is about understanding your audiences and their nuances to better serve them then to I have a test that wins or I have a test that loses, which is a very singular dimension to look at experimentation. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with what you've, you've said over here. So this is one interesting thought that I've been having over the last month or so now. And it's about this debate about conversion optimization as this learnings, you know, a tool to learn and really drive innovation forward as well versus a tool that's purely marketed as a commercial you know you're going we're going to ramp up your conversions we're going to increase your revenue and i've been speaking to a few agencies and, and maybe you might be able to share some insights coming from an agency point of view as well and so when agencies pitch for business they're pitching based on certain revenues that they're going to increase or they're, that they're going to impact and my take on that is you don't know if you're going to impact that or not because you don't know the answers and you're experimenting to find that out. Yet, it seems that there are guarantees given or there are you know, um, yeah, I, I promises made. I, yeah, I, I'm sorry to interject, but I'm quite passionate about this. I think that's reckless. And I think that happens here in Australia as well. And I think it's a desperation for business. Uh, and you know, I, I really feel sad when I hear this stuff because it, it just shows people aren't passionate about what they do. Because your passion should sell your work. It should not be about a, a promise. And, and anyone who says to you that, I can increase your conversions by 10% or I can bring you $4 million. I've done these mathematics and all that kind of stuff. They're lying to you because fundamentally, I know one thing. I, I come from a UX background. I've done this for 20 years and the number of designs that I've done that I've lost, I mean, I'm embarrassed to even say I'm a UX designer because, you know, I, until I understand your audience, until I understand your organization, the nuances of your organization, you know, sometimes, and I've had this a few times where, I have gone to, to bat for a client and help them increase their conversions when the problem is the product. And I come back and I'm like, I've done the best I can. I, I got you like a 0.1% uplift. But at, at the end of the day, you have a very bad product. You have some fundamental product issues that makes you non-competitive. And no, no matter what I do, I, I, I can lie to a customer, but fundamentally they're not going to buy. People are not stupid. And to think yep. that I can use conversion techniques to make them believe like black hat techniques is not going to happen. Them. Not, yeah. And I'm not going to do it. Like it's not, you know, our mission statement, which is on our wall is create environments that help people make better decisions, live better lives. Right. So I'm not going to do stuff that is untoward or manipulate them or lie to them because ultimately you're not actually creating a better user experience. You're, you're misguiding people. So yeah, I, uh, I, the reason why I brought that up was because exactly the way you went about describing how you come up with, you know, the problem statement, how you go about, you know, finding answers. And that's exactly, it resonates with me quite a bit. And I'm quite passionate about the industry. If you, if you picked up from what I do, uh, you know, online, it's, it's all about, you know, getting people to do it the right way. But I feel we're in the grips of something where it can swing the other way, you know, with, with our industry getting a name of cheap, parlor tricks of you know let, let's change this button color right yeah and, it will, and, and it will. it's if you look at like i said to you once the media guys step into this and really start to drive optimization from a media focus it will become a pro commoditized product discussion 
And what I'm really passionate of is the Chads and the Tims of the world and yourself and some of the other guys in the world that are really focused around designing experiences and making this a product-led focus. That's when we'll start to have much more high-level educated conversation about delivering good experiences. And we need yep. more product managers in this space. Whereas I think you're, you're absolutely right. The more we go down this media channel, because media fundamentally is about I'll deliver for X, I'll give you more customers. And, and there's yep. nothing wrong with that. But I, I think leading with that conversation is a, it's the wrong place. Just like optimizer, like Pete said, I should never have talked about a button color. You know, <laughs> it's the truth. Like it's not a good place to start the conversation. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a new category. People are trying to do what's right for them to pay their bills. And unfortunately, yeah. the level of uh, knowledge that they just don't have because they're just new to the category. So they go to the common element that everyone knows, money and return. Yeah, definitely. And and so this was a discussion we had on the first episode of, of this season, actually, with Chad and, uh, and Tim. It's about the ROI of experimentation, right? Some of it should, well, there isn't any ROI uh, because you're fixing things, you're answering questions, which shouldn't really have an ROI. But from a commercial point of view, and and this is the the, the, the pushback from prospects or leads which kind of then drives this behavior of of people having to you know make promises that they can't really keep if anything which then further entrenches people's beliefs that conversion optimization is not really worth their time well i think i think you, you the the i think i think all of you guys have to kind of change your view on something here is that the word investment in roi you know, an investment is time, an investment is knowledge, an investment, you know, an investment is, is an output of some form. It's just, unfortunately, when we talk about ROI, we think of it from a P&L perspective, which is about money. Yeah. And so, you know, I think if you start with the idea of what is the investment that we're making and what is the return that we're looking for, if the investment is about a money, then that's a client you don't want because you'll always end up with, I gave you a dollar, did you give me back four? And I know a lot sure. of times when we, you have to start by losing to learn the audience to then start winning. And so the investment is not so much about financial. The investment needs to be about what is it I've learned over this period that I can now leverage to gain those kinds of, and the leverage I'm talking about is how, you know, our job is to serve customers. How do we serve them better by helping them, helping us understand them better? You know, we do focus groups and all that, but CRO is, is the true, uh, and for me, why I love experimentation, why I kind of went, all UX is going to become CRO is because experimentation is the true essence of learning. If I put you in a focus group and I said to you, now tell me, what do you think of this page? What do you think of that button? Do you like that call to action? You'll answer because you're an intelligent human being and you've been asked the question or an opinion and human beings like giving their opinions because it gives them a sense of worth, a sense of knowledge, right? Or status. But fundamentally, if I put you in your house and your kids are screaming and your wife's in the background yelling out to do something, the TV's blaring in the background, your mobile phone rings, would you still behave the same? Would you see that button? Would you act in the same way? That's what experimentation gives me, a real understanding of you as a human being in your world and all the things that come with it. So, so the thing about experimentation is it's, it's less about the money I pay for the return I get and more about what I've actually learned about my customer to then drive better experiments to serve them better. We talk about the culture of experimentation to the exec team based on money. And that's what we constantly do. We talk about a return. We talk about, you know, if we're expecting our conversion rates will go to that. And I've seen it so many times. They say, if we have a lift of 0.1%, it will equal this much per year. And so the business goes, absolutely. But yeah. it's like that. Have you ever seen that thing on LinkedIn, I see it a lot. And like the CFO and the CEO and the CFO goes, what if we spend on our people on training them and they leave? What if we don't spend it and they stay? It's the same yeah. attitude. The way you start the conversation finds the outcome, right? So if we don't learn about our customers, it doesn't matter the returns we get tomorrow. We will lose these people over time. So we need to start learning today. And experimentation is a method of it. So I think the way we start this conversation around ROI is incorrect. I think agencies that uh, you know, spouse that they will deliver a return on investment, I think it's desperate money grabbing. And what they need to do is go back into the art of experimentation and understand what's the outcome 
that you're trying to drive to. Money is an ultimate. It will ultimately happen if you're winning, right? Money will always occur. But the actual thing that you're looking for is understanding customers. If you understand them, people, then one thing I always say to customers, no one wants to be sold to, but everybody wants to buy. We all want to buy something, right? It's how you present it to me, which is the important thing. And that's the bit that we're always trying to do and where I think psychology uh, is missed. I was at a really big conference around UX. Do you know how many people talked about the psychology of the user, about understanding the drivers and motivation of customers? Do you know how many? This is how like a full, full of how none. Many speakers were none there? of them. None, really. None wow. Okay. None of them talked about the understanding the psychology of buyer and understanding design into the psychology of choice. None of them. All of them talked about, you know, designing or the challenges of design, but no one talked about psychology. And so I think if we as experimenters keep focusing on a money outcome, we're really driving down the wrong pathway. We really need to understand customers better. And the only way to do that is use experimentation as a means of uncovering real intent. You know, the kind of intent that happens when your wife's screaming and the TV's blaring, the kids are crying and the dog's barking, real intent. Uh, that's John Ekman's video. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, John Ekman from Conversion Jam at, at his conference, he plays that exact video of, of um, you know, someone trying to buy something online with everyone just screaming. It's a hyper-exaggerated video, of course, but yeah, in a, in a standard household, it's not, uh, you know, with kids that I have kids myself. Yeah, it's, it's... John's the only guy who can pull off a video like that and it comes across <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah, I wonder if it's on YouTube somewhere. It, it's quite a hilarious video. So I'll see if I can, I can dig that up with the show notes. Yeah, but that's, and, and that is the truth. And that is the real truth. And that's what as experimenters we have an obligation to is uncovering the real intent to purchase. And, and, and I think that's what we don't do enough in this category. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up these points. I mean, these, these are some really good uh, sound bites that, you, that you, you know, I can pick up from this conversation I've had with you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, talking to you today, Nima. Uh, I'm glad we ha uh, I stayed up this late. It's it's now gone past midnight yeah, over here, but you know, yeah, you kept well, me awake throughout. You kept good. me awake throughout. So you know, it, it, there was never a dull moment, uh, and I'm glad we we had this conversation. I, I hope we can have uh, you know a few more conversations in the future as well, uh, oh. timing permitting. And if you're ever down this way, you know, give us a shout. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm actually in your neck of the woods in September, so uh, I'll That's be. Um, find time. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there at the Go Group Summit. So um, yeah, let's yeah, find so, time yeah. to catch up. Good stuff. Like and yeah, yeah, definitely, Nima. Uh, for people that want to learn more about you, you know, what site do they go to? What Twitter handle? You know, give us some details for yes. the the people yeah, listening. It's not big over here, and I've got enough social media to take care of, so I didn't get on Twitter. Um, so yeah. <laughs> You can always follow me on, uh, on my LinkedIn account. As you know, I constantly publish thought pieces on that. Um, you can also come to our website uh, at newrepublic.com. And also, if you ever want to reach out and talk to me, you can just email hello at New Republic, and, uh, and I'm on there as well. And that's New Republic with not, not ending with IC, it's ending with I-Q-U-E. E, the French spelling. New yeah, Republic. New Repu yeah, that's it. Yeah, there we go. So, yeah, in case you go to New Republic and you end up on some fashion site, I think it is. I'm not yeah, quite sure yet. That could be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like this, this fashion site isn't giving me any motivation to buy. Oh, there's a red shirt over there. Those <laughs> <laughs> are in the background. Yeah, there we go. So, Anima, pleasure as always having you on. And uh, for everyone listening, uh, thank you for uh, you know watching or listening uh, to this episode. Uh, if you've missed previous episodes, you know we've got quite a few um, of them on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, coming up on Stitcher as well. And if you want to catch the videos, if you want to see us, then you know then check out our website, EffectiveExperiments.com. Uh, you'll find all the um, the podcast uh, video versions on there as well. Um, as always, before um, you go, I just want to say okay, one yeah. thing heard any of you guys say this and i think it's important on behalf of all of us in this category i want to say thank you because guys like you help build our category by you taking the effort to do things like this it changes the way we all start to learn and share and grow and i i think on behalf of all of us and i don't think anyone's done this yet i really thank I, you for putting this time and energy into something like this i appreciate it Nima. That that means a lot thank you <laughs> thanks for that 
And so for everyone, again, you know, before I got segued into that, blushing and everything. But yeah, thank you for, for listening and giving your time to learn and become better. We're trying to improve the industry, as Nima says. Let's do it together. Thanks for watching. Bye. You've been listening to Conversionations. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when we release new updates. Conversionations is brought to you by Effective Experiments. Want to make experimentation a core part of your business? Request your demo and let us show you how we can help you grow your testing program.